The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Welcome to The Views Room, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba. This week, we are diving into the valuations of two of the most intriguing companies in the world, Lyft and Saudi oil giant Aramco. Ride-sharing firm Lyft has been all over the map since it went public last week. The valuation has now settled down to about $30 billion. It was one of the most hyped IPOs in I guess several years. People have been really looking forward to this thing. And partially, it has something to say about Uber, which is its rival, coming up soon. So in the studio to kind of work this out for us, we have Rob Siren. Thanks for coming in. You're welcome. And of course, Anthony Curry, you're going to be on the other side of the mic answering questions instead of posing them. Bloviating as ever. Okay. So um, this thing is gone all over the place. It's gyrating, popped when it first debuted, and now it's down. What is it down? Tell us so the numbers. It, so when it went public at 72, mm-hmm. went up to uh, about 80-something, 80 80 84, 87, 87 yeah. So okay. up about 20% or so. Now it's back down to slightly below where it went public. So it's a big big move in less than a few, you know, a few days. Having actually been even, even further below that, it dropped like you know almost 10% below the IPO price at one point. Before coming back up again, how do we think about this company? Like, what? What is it? Well, the thing is, so it's so it is as you said, a ride-hailing company. You know, they, they rent out. Uh, you can get rides in cars, or you can rent a scooter or a bike. Uh, transportation companies, I like to call it. It's growing really fast, but it's losing a ton of money. Um, revenue last year was two point two billion, um, and they lost something like nine hundred million, I think. But just to be clear, revenue went up. Quicker than losses. Yeah, right, everyone went, so. went up a hundred percent, but then they're still losing a ton of money. So, what I mean by what is it? Not like literally what <laughs> okay. is it, but how do you think about it as an investor? What do you compare it against? What it's, What are the comparables? What's well, a Rorschach test? So you 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 basically say, okay, do you think this company's growing really fast, over a hundred percent last year in revenue? Do you think okay, it's going to keep on growing that fast, and eventually losses are going to taper off, or do you think well, losses don't seem to really taper off much with with size? So it's just going to keep on losing money. Um, the IPO valuation last week indicates investors think, hey, this thing is going to keep on growing, and over time, losses are going to fade away, and then it's going to make profits. Um, so it, it probably, if you look at the numbers, it, um, it's valued now at about 12 times sales uh, for last year, um, and it, a bit less for bookings. And if you look at Uber, for instance, because now, again, no one knows how to value these companies, and Uber's a lot bigger, so everyone's saying, okay, well, Uber now has a good comp, so let's compare Uber to Lyft. If you look at Uber under the same metrics, you know, bookings and sales, Uber's worth something between 140 and 170 billion. Just to put that in perspective, that's probably double what its last official top level funding round was at, right? It's about $70 billion, I think, wasn't it? I think, I think it was a bit more than that, but yeah, it's uh, worth a lot more. Okay, so let me, let me see if I understand this correctly. Um, because Lyft is where it is now, even though it's fallen in its valuation, which again, it's only been around for a week in the public markets, that could be a good thing for Uber. Yes. Because it gives and you a metric to kind of weigh it against. Exactly. And what's interesting and telling is that these two companies are bitter rivals. And in the weeks leading up to the Lyft IPO, Uber was very quiet and <laughs> didn't say anything. You know, they were, they were kind of quietly supportive of Lyft. Um, because they know that the better Lyft looks, it makes them look better, and they'll they'll probably argue, they're going to argue for, hey, we're a lot bigger, 
we deserve a premium because you know we're in all these countries. We're, you know we're we're the biggest company, and you know eventually it's probably going to settle down to a winner take most market. That's mm -hmm. what they're going to argue, and so therefore you know hey you know based on Lyft's numbers we should be worth 160 billion, but actually we deserve a premium. We should be worth 200 billion or something like that. That's that's what they'll yeah, argue. It's, it's you know, finger in the air stuff, but from I think from a from a banking perspective, and if you think it's the banks that have come up with this number in conjunction with investors, so you think on the first day, hey, you see this pop of like 15, 20 percent, you think, okay, in general IPO theory, that's not bad. You want to leave a little bit of money on the table as the issuer and let investors have a bit of a pop. Then to see it come right back down and blow the IPO price, you think, okay, the bankers have got it wrong. They, they've 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 somehow managed to leave investors. Um, getting hurt here, but to settle at roughly the IPO price makes the bankers look smart, at least for now. That's a big if because anything can happen in the next few weeks. And for Uber, that's got to be the, the, the kind of stability that it and its bankers have been looking for. So the pop wasn't so as it's so important. It's the stability to be able to come to the market afterwards. Then, as Rob says, you can then argue with your investors for the IPO of whether you should or shouldn't be uh, priced at a premium to Uber. Okay, this is a hypothetical question here. If it were reversed, if Uber went out first and then Lyft went out, would that be worse for Lyft? Um, probably. Um, there is a bit of a scarcity premium. In other words, if you want to invest in Uber, you may some investors may think, well, Uber's not here, Lyft is here, I can at least invest in Lyft. Other companies may want to other investors may want to invest in both. Um, and it's hard to say because Lyft is actually growing faster, and it's um, it's pretty much only in the United States. Um, so some people may think, okay, that's a better market. Let's do that. Other investors may say, well, you know, I'd I'd prefer a company which is in multiple markets all over the United States and is bigger. So it'll, it'll it'll take different investors. But I think to answer your question simply, I think it probably would be a bit worse for Lyft because. I think more people are interested in Uber than they are in Lyft. I'm going to take the other side of that one, though, simply because um, I think what people are looking for in both these companies is what happens not with their ride sharing as it happens now. It's what happens in 5, 10, 15 years' time as they, the drive towards autonomy, assuming that happens, uh, comes into force. And I think that puts um, Lyft and Uber on the same page as Tesla. They're all moving towards a similar kind of future, at least in investors' minds, which is if we can get rid of drivers and have these cars run autonomously and run on, on electric batteries, then we can bring down the cost of travel to the point where we can then um, have a bigger cut of the fees and it will be lower price for consumers, and that's where the money is coming from. Um, well, that's a really big if, because if you look at some other companies in the area, so GM, for example, with its cruise division, is pretty far ahead compared to many rivals on autonomous driving, and yet is nowhere near getting any taxis out on the road, railroad taxis out on the road, which is the way it's first going to happen. And GM is getting virtually no credit for anything it's doing, right? because no one believes that a, a, a traditional car company can do it. But Lyft and Uber and Tesla are trading at ridiculously high multiples based on the theory that there will be this autonomous future. So I think that's really where the, why it's at 30 billion for Lyft or 150, 160 for Uber is going to be. It's not about whether they dominate now and in which market as much as it will be, do we think they're going to get this wonderful autonomous future in, you know, name your year. So one thing that I don't understand about this IPO, it seems like more recent IPOs, like let's take Spotify. Spotify also kind of similar. It's fast growing, not profitable. It's a different market, totally different game. But it didn't fall 
as quickly as Lyft did. So does that say something broader about the market, or is this specifically about Lyft? Um, it could be either. Um, there are there are all these companies out there, the private, the unicorns, you know, and the thing is there, there are limited numbers of them out today. Um, there'll probably be a lot more in a year's time. And so the more of these that come out there, the more um, people should be skeptical because it, it's one thing to be, be like, hey, you know, there's a unicorn, out, there's this fast-growing tech company, I need to take a punt on it. Fine. If there are lots of them, people can divide their bets and say, this one's better than that one, so I'll invest in, you know, in, say, Pinterest rather than in Spotify. So I think the more of these that come out, the more the harder it's going to get for all of these companies, all of these loss-making companies to find investors. And actually, what... It- what you're describing there is basically the way that venture capitalists would look at investing in new companies, right? So, you know, the so-called scattergun approach, whatever, where you or the the throw at the wall and see which one sticks. So, as long as one really one of your ten investments really hits it out of the park, doesn't matter if the other nine fall away. Well, you've now got that kind of transferring to the way that public investors are doing it, which yeah, is is kind of worrying in some respects. As, as long as the investors know what they're doing, it's fine. As, as long as they they realise they are acting like venture capitalists, basically in these money losing companies. But a lot of people aren't, isn't it? It's 20, 30% of investors in Tesla are retail investors. I mean, that's got to be pretty scary. The other thing is timeframes. Like you were saying that, you know, um, people are in these companies are saying, hey, you know, in five, 10 years, we're going to have autonomous vehicles on the road. If you talk to anyone outside the company, it's more like 15, 20 years, perhaps. Um, what's the average length of shareholding nowadays? Um, you know, I doubt, <laughs> I doubt many, if any, of the shareholders investing now outside of index funds are going to be in these companies when actual autonomous vehicles. Yeah, that's quite possibly. I I was was reading one uh, research note the other day from an investment firm which believes that autonomy will be on the roads in like three or four years and that the price per mile will be 26 cents, um, which is incredibly low. The the moment you're paying 250 to $3 a mile. Mm-hmm. Um, for a taxi. So to get down to the 26 cents, you can basically tack any part of the value chain you want. But that, look, I mean, look at their model or not if you want, but that strikes me personally as utterly crazy to think you're going to get it that far and that cheap that quickly. I would save that research report and reference it in the future. <laughs> All right. I don't think I can top that, Rob. So let's leave it there. Thanks for coming on the program. Great to be here. And Curry, thanks for being on the other side. No worries. Aramco is a little less opaque thanks to a 469-page prospectus the Saudi oil giant issued to raise debt for its acquisition of SABIC. Here to talk us through the staggering financial details are my colleagues, George Hay on the line from London. Hello, George. Hi, Matt. And John Foley, who is joining me here in the studio in New York. Hello, John. Hi, Jen. Okay. So, George, let's start with this uh, monster phone book, novel, whatever you want to call it, uh, prospectus that the Saudi government dropped, kind of give some detail about um, Aramco, which we haven't really had before. Is that correct? Yeah, that's that's totally correct. I mean, basically, it's been a bit of a black box. Um, it's this massive company. You can see the production figures. Um, people knew about that before, but they didn't really knew. Uh, they really know what the income statement or the balance sheet really was, and that's what you get from this. Um, uh, it's a bond prospectus. Effectively, what they're doing is raising probably at least ten billion dollars in um, debt from foreign investors. Uh, Aramco is doing that in order to finance um, their seventy billion. Uh, dollar acquisition of a, a stake, of a 70% stake in Sabic. So that's, that's why they're doing it. 
So they have um, more than $200 billion in EBITDA, which seems staggering. That's, what, three times the amount that Apple has? Like, what? I mean, t- t- these numbers are crazy. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, they, I suppose the, one way to think about it is that they are um, kind of massive, but they're not, if, uh, they're not completely um, out, of the, uh, out of anybody's imagination, given that we knew that uh, the, the scale of Aramco's reserves, we know they're basically um, they're, they're the, the main conduit or the main um, cockpit whereby Saudi pumps 10, over 10 million barrels of oil a day. And you can, and you can kind of um, do the math and um, you can work out that that's actually roughly what they probably would have, would have been earning. Um, and indeed, that's, that's precisely what Breaking News did a couple of years ago when we were thinking about what the IPO um, uh, valuation of this company was, but um, it's that. All that being said, it's it's good to have the numbers kind of in black and white in front of you, um, and that's what we do have now. Okay, so John, you looked at this. Uh, you plugged in some of those numbers into a calculator that Breaking Views put together um, to try and kind of pinpoint. Uh, where Aramco would come out in the public markets. Um, so let's just back up a little bit here because uh, so the the idea that they were going to go public or Aramco was going to go public, um, you know, it's been, excuse my phrase, floating around for a while now. Um, and then it's, it seems to be on ice. So what, uh, just kind of explain what the Saudis were hoping to get their valuation and and how these numbers kind of work into that. So yeah, um, Aramco is like, is the biggest. The thing to know about Aramco is it's the biggest oil producer in the world by a long way, and it's also one of the biggest companies in the world we now know because we've seen its inner workings through this prospectus. So a couple of years ago, Saudi started talking about listing its shares on international stock markets, which was a huge deal because this company, supposedly according to the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, was worth two trillion dollars. So that is that you know that's twice what Apple is. Yeah, I, I mean it's. It goes without saying that would be the biggest listed company in the world. So everyone starts poring over what they know about the company and trying to work out whether it's really worth that. And the problem with Aramco is that its uh, financial statements have been highly secret until basically this week. Okay. So what we did was we um, we kind of did it backwards. So instead of saying what is this company worth, we said, well, the Crown Prince says it's worth two trillion which is obviously a suspiciously round and neat. But we were like, well, what would it need to look like to be worth $2 trillion? So we kind of did a bit of reverse engineering and worked out that you have to have some really crazy assumptions like oil being $100 a barrel when actually at the time it was $50 a barrel forever for the valuation to, um, to start getting north of you know, $2 trillion. What we've done now is we've just gone back to that having all this new information from the prospectus, plugged in some tweaked assumptions. We were mostly right, actually, I have to say, blowing our own trumpet. There were a couple of uh, places in which we were we were a bit conservative. It turns out Aramco is more efficient or it's cheaper for them to get oil out of the ground than we thought. And we'd been pretty generous on that already. But the long and the short of it is still there's no way that we can get to a $2 trillion valuation. We get about $1.1 trillion. On a really good day, you can get up to about $1.7 trillion. So this mythical $2 trillion valuation, which would be just like a giant, you know, it would create huge ripples through the global capital markets, is still just a kind of paper tiger. Okay. So here's the thing I, I don't understand. And George, maybe you can uh, help me and clarify some of this, and maybe you don't even know. But 
Why are they even going out to raise money for this deal? It seems like if it's as big as it is and they have as much cash as they have and they're generating massive EBITDA, why do they need to raise $10 billion? Like, what's the, what's the point of this? That's a very good question. And it kind of links into what John was talking about, which is that um, when uh, Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, as he's known, was um, thinking about doing the IPA, um, it's not officially off, it's kind of on, on ice at the moment. Um, uh, the assumption was that they would list about, um, sell about 5% of a $2 trillion company, and that would um, raise $100 billion um, to, and, and the whole point was that he was going to use that to stick into this thing called the Public Investment Fund, which is the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. And then he was going to use that, or the PIF was going to use that to um, diversify the Saudi economy by buying stakes in technology companies or whatever, anything not oil-related. Right. Um, now, obviously, obviously, now that hasn't happened. So because the IPO hasn't happened, but the PIF still needs the, needs the money, and the MBS still wants the money to come in from somewhere. So in a kind of rather roundabout way, what? That the kind of plan B that they kind of came up with last year was, um, well, why doesn't Aramco, uh, what can we use Aramco to, in any other way to raise money? And the, the idea that they came up with was um, they had, the PIF already owns um, a 70% stake in this thing, SABIC. And so the idea was for Aramco to come in and buy that stake, um, and that would, that would immediately give $70 billion Dollars to um, to the PIF, and so MBS's kind of diversification ideas would um, would uh, would potentially then be able to move forward. Um, the only problem with that is, um, according to people I've spoken to, Aramco um, wasn't exactly massively pleased to just be used as a kind of beast of burden to buy this um, stake in this massive company, um, and <laughs> as a result, um, they. I mean, there's been a long kind of negotiation about exactly what uh, and how they would pay for this um, SABIC stake, um, and the, the debt, the debt just reflect the debt that the bond prospectus that they come out with and the bond that they're going to raise. That just reflects that um, that's part of the financing they're going to do for this deal. But the interesting thing about um, what they announced yesterday was that they're only going to pay for half of this um, stake. Half of the 70 billion for SABIC up front, and they're kind of going to pay the rest over the next couple of years. And that reflects the fact that Aramco is a bit, um, bit annoyed really with the um, with the uh, Saudi government because it doesn't want to have to use all its resources to do things it doesn't necessarily or it wouldn't otherwise do. If, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's it's a, a very it's a very like convoluted story, but it's. The, the, the big picture stuff is um, that MBS is trying to diversify the country. His plan A, the um, IPO of Aramco, is on ice. Um, and so he's been kind of in, uh, they, they've been investigating other ways to, to skin that cat. But also, Jen, to, to speak to your question of why, I mean, it's actually a really good question in another way, because you look at it from a distance and you're like, why is this company buying a stake in this other company to put money into this fund, all of which are owned by the Saudi government? Right. It's all, isn't like, it all the same pot of money? It is all yeah. basically the same pot of money. And that is kind, that kind of gets to the heart of Aramco, um, which is a government-owned 
entity that does the state in the Saudi Arabian kingdom's bidding. And like now we have all this information that we didn't have before, and we can see the extent to which the government tells Aramco what to do. And there's, there's some really fascinating stuff in there. There's all this stuff about how Aramco didn't used to get paid sometimes for oil from the Saudi government, that it goes to Saudi government, so it would just kind of like forget about it and write it off as if it never happened. But also they do all this stuff that they call corporate citizenship, which is basically where Saudi says, you need to build an 18 floor thing called a knowledge center in the middle of the desert, um, where we're going to like do all kinds of technological fanciness, and you have to pay for it. Thanks. Bye. And so they do it. So, so the, in the prospectus, there's all this stuff about the corporate citizenship projects they're doing. And it says, we are going to have to do more of this stuff. I think, as, as John was saying, in, in doing so, in doing that, they can't not also flag that there are some kind of pretty obvious governance risks with investing in Aramco in any shape or form, either as a bond or as an, uh, an equity investor. Right. Because it is completely and obviously completely tied up with the state. And um, the, you know, there are all sorts of different um, ways in which that is the case. Um, the SABIC deal that they've just done is, is probably the most expensive example of something that they wouldn't necessarily otherwise have done if it wasn't for other kind of political forces um, emanating down from MBS, um, kind of obliging them to do so, I suppose. Last question. Um before I let both of you go, why, in your view, is the Aramco IPO on hold? Why was that put on ice? Why did it get put on hold? Well, of course, we don't actually know because they won't tell us. But a very strong suspicion that we have and a lot of other people have is that the $2 trillion valuation that the Crown Prince had repeatedly mentioned was just not achievable. Mm-hmm. We'd, done the, we'd done our back of the envelope stuff and couldn't get there. Other analysts couldn't get there. But clearly, like as, as if in some kind of bizarre old kind of fairy tale where, you know, the emperor's new clothes or like the king tells all the townspeople to do something ridiculous and they all do it. It was as if the prince said two trillion and the world had to be reshaped to fit that royal mandate. It just wasn't possible. Investors may sometimes seem a bit stupid when you see them like pushing up the shares of Lyft. On yes, the I was going to say. <laughs> but they're not all stupid, which yeah. is why you then see the shares of Lyft come down again. Uh, the next day. And, and I think that um, it's highly likely that they just couldn't deliver what the Crown Prince wanted. Okay. Yeah, I mean, and, and obviously, uh, I mean, that was kind of the status quo pretty much by the end of last summer. And people were already assuming that um, the whole thing was on ice and shunted into 2021 or whatever. And then, of course, you got the, um, the whole Khashoggi affair in last autumn where uh, the Saudi journalist was um, murdered rather brutally by Saudi agents, and um, no one knows whether uh, MBS was um, knew about it or kind of ordered it. And the official line is absolutely not; he didn't. But um, fairly obviously, that has had a kind of pretty seismic effect on um, on uh, the uh, the appeal of Saudi um, assets at this stage. Um, that may change in future, but um, that kind of, it was pretty much, the IPO was already kind of down, but um, the Khashoggi affair almost knocked it completely out. There's also, I mean, issuing a bond is a bit safer yeah. if you're an investor, because the only question is, will they pay the interest right. and will they pay you back? Whereas if you're buying shares in the company, there's all kinds of like, 
what will they make it do? So obviously, what the governance risk of owning the equity in a five percent stake, yeah. or a small a percent of five percent in a company which is ninety five percent owned by um, the Saudi government. Right. Uh, there are pretty obvious kind of governance questions that you would have. Um, and the, the whole point is that everything to do with the diversification and the opening up of Saudi Arabia goes hand in hand with um, uh, international investors' uh, propensity to invest in Saudi bonds and also Saudi equities such as Aramco. And so if that whole um, process goes into reverse, then the whole thing becomes much more complicated, which is kind of where we are at the moment. Okay. Well, um, George, thank you for walking us through that. It's fascinating stuff. And I'm sure we'll we'll have you back on to um, explain more. And John, thanks for coming in. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. Okay. Thanks. That's our show for this week. I'd like to thank our guests, John Foley, George Hay, Rob Searin, and of course, my co-host, Anthony Curry. And hats off to our producers, Andrew D'Antonio and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com and don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.